Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this talk that's about the voice of God. That's a little bit loud, isn't it? I'll, I'll try and moderate that for you. Um, good evening. Welcome to Trinity College, Queensland. If you haven't met me before, Simon Gommelsell's my name. I'm one of the faculty here. And it's an absolute pleasure to, uh, to welcome you to yet another very exciting Trinity Unplugged. Now, this is called Trinity Unplugged, but the reality is that we're actually quite plugged in tonight because we're live streaming to people who are watching this all over the state. And so we want to just have a little shout out to those uh, who are included in that circumstance. Um, so whether you're here tonight and we're, just for those who can't see, uh, we're fairly packed in. So that's good. Good energy tonight. Thank you for being here. Thank you for joining us on the live stream as well. Um, just before I, I move to a couple of procedural things uh, for this evening, I just wanted to acknowledge that from the very days of creation, the Ancient of Days has breathed life into this land and into her people. And from beyond time of our reckoning, the Yugara people have blessed this place through their laws, their customs, their care and their concern. And so we tonight want to pay respect to their elders and leaders, past and present, and to pray for their future communities as well. And indeed, we should be praying. So let's join together in prayer, shall we? Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to gather tonight in this place, at this moment of time, in this location, to think about the topic that's before us. We ask uh, your blessing upon us that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our hearts and in our minds, helping us to better understand who you are, who we are, how we work, and how you work in our lives. Um, so be at work in our midst, we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, a couple of procedural things. If you're not sure where the bathrooms are located on this floor, um, you go out the door and around the corner. So where you first came out of the lift, immediately opposite is where the bathrooms are located. Should there be an emergency tonight, which we're trusting there won't be, but if there are, the emergency exits are the, the large door that says Exit B across the student lounge here. There's a second, and that will be stairs that can take you down to um, the ground. Um, and then there's a second exit uh, in this corner of the building here. And should we need to, um, to leave the building and assemble outside, we would assemble on Baylor Street. So that's the street running uh, beside us here. There will be an opportunity for you to ask questions at the end of the talk tonight. Um, if you are watching on the live stream, then there'll be an opportunity for you also to email questions to ask at trinity.qld.edu.au um, and we'll be receiving those questions and directing them towards our speaker, whom I'm now going to introduce without any further ado. So, Dr. Paul Jones grew up as a missionary kid. I guess he wasn't Dr. Paul Jones then. So just, Paul Jones grew up as a missionary kid. Now, I want you to try and picture it. Wild, unbridled, and barefoot, running through the jungles of Nigeria. Paul told me that for most of his childhood, he wore little else but his underpants. I'm still trying to work out why he told me that. <laughs> and I guess, Paul, we're extremely thankful that your dress sense has developed a little since your childhood. Um, but that early, rich, 
grounding and formative cross-cultural experience that Paul had, I think, probably created something of an international yearning in him. Uh, for he came back to Australia for his secondary education and his initial tertiary education, where jazz music featured significantly, did it not? Um, and then he was back on a plane over to uh, Regent College in Canada, where he studied theology. Uh, he, of course, did his doctoral studies in Old Testament at Durham University in the UK. And along the way, he stopped reading the Bible just long enough to meet and marry the delightful Katie, his wife, um, and to become dad to two gorgeous girls, Sophie and Eden, who genuinely are utterly delightful. Um, there are a few other stages in his journey. Um, he, here in Australia, got a graduate um, education degree and taught here and then taught in the UK as well. Uh, he and Katie at one stage were dorm parents in, in an orphanage in Argentina, of all places. So it's a colourful story that Paul's life tells, which is probably why he also is a colourful character. Paul was employed at Trinity College Queensland in 2016 as a lecturer in Old Testament and homiletics, and it was the natural and obvious um, thing for him then to be promoted to the position of principal when that became vacant earlier this year. And I can genuinely tell you that everyone in the college community was very excited when that appointment was made. Um, part of that excitement, I think, and one of the reasons I love hanging out with Paul is just because he's so grounded. Uh, when Paul reflects on the Bible, it's real, it's honest, sometimes it's a little raw, but it's always understandable and accessible and it connects with both a living God and the, the fabric of life as it actually is. Despite his significant intellectual capacities, uh, I don't think Paul will ever be at home in an ivory tower. And I trust that we all tonight are going to benefit from his broad life experience, his living faith, his deep grounding in the scriptures, and his dogged determination to ensure that conversations about God always address the real issues of life. And all that will come together, I believe, as he reflects on the topic tonight, God's voice or my feelings, the role of emotions in discerning the will of God. Ladies and gentlemen, would you join me in welcoming Dr. Paul Jones? Well, thank you, Simon. It's quite the introduction. <clears throat> Took me a long time to write that. <laughs> well, uh, there's a couple chairs up the front for anyone who's outside just still looking for a seat. Um, I see some people wandering up and down. There's maybe three or four seats here at the front. <clears throat> um, I've been a Christian all my life. Uh, as Simon mentioned, I, I grew up as a missionary kid and then grew up in a Christian family, went to a kind of Christian school. And um, that means that I've heard a lot of people tell me what God has been saying to them in different contexts. Sometimes there's a narrative around that. You know, this happened and this happened. And I felt through all of that that God was saying such and such. And sometimes, as you will know, people simply say, God told me to go and be a missionary in Latin America, for instance. And people around them might say, well, that's fantastic, go and do it. It's like all they've heard is the word missionary and they don't want to tease out the God told me bit. And there's a part of me that has always wanted to ask more questions in those contexts. And I, I'll admit, I'm a bit of a pain in the neck 
now if I'm ever in one of those conversations. Because I do have a tendency to ask that question that I assume is on everyone's mind. You say God told you. Tell me a bit more about that. How did God tell you? How did it feel? Were there actual words or was there just a sense? Were there some other events around this? Did a community affirm that word for you? Where did it come from? Did you just have a nice breakfast? And you thought, yeah, Latin America is for me. Discernment is of massive importance, isn't it? I'm sure you're all aware. Discerning what is God's voice and what isn't God's voice is a huge deal. It's a huge deal because when you become a Christian, you usually hear two things. One, there's this fact-faith-feeling train. (laughs) Who knows the fact-faith-feeling train? Trust the facts, yeah? Have faith and don't worry about your feelings too much because you can't really trust them. Tonight I'm going to tell you the opposite of that. I'm going to try and get you to trust in your feelings a little bit more with some provisos. The other thing that people tell you when you become a Christian is God has a plan for your life, right? Who heard that God had a plan for their life when they became a Christian? Yeah, I see lots of hands. That's good. The language can be a little bit um, unhelpful though. A perfect plan for your life. So don't fall off it now. Don't get derailed. Um, I hope that tonight will be practically helpful, helpful for you. Uh, it does come out of a lot of journey. And as I look at all of your faces and I see real people with real lives, with whole histories of decision making behind them and whole lots of future opportunities in front of them, it's a little nerve wracking. I'm wondering why I chose this topic. I I was out in the hallway early and someone said to me, hey Paul, looking forward to all the answers. And I thought, yeah, where's the back door? Where's the fire exit? Um, So I'm conscious that a lot of you will have come tonight with questions on your minds and hearts and things that arise out of your experience. And the Q&A time at the end will have some chance to explore some of those things. I will do my best. And I I will tell you a little bit about where I'm coming from before I get stuck into things and where I have learnt a lot of what I'm going to share with you tonight. Uh, Simon mentioned Regent College. Regent was a really formative place for me um, over in Vancouver in Canada. I did my master's degree there and I took a course called Divine Guidance and Spiritual Discernment. And the whole course was around hearing God's voice and discerning what is and isn't God's voice. And I learned a lot of really key and core things that have stuck with me over the last, goodness, 20 years. And that 20 years now has become experience that has helped me to give others counsel in hearing and discerning God's voice. It's not really sticking with me, is it? Sorry for those of you on the, on the live feed. I think you're just getting, the, yeah, there it is. You're getting my hands. I think it's, what it's doing is it's cutting out in between. Okay. Yeah, sure. Then I'm just then I'm then I'm held by this wire, yes, you see. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to go over there a lot. Um, this is God's plan. <clears throat> it's a sign. We'll be talking about that. Hold that question. Um, I wonder if you could pop that video on, and we're just going to watch a two-minute video clip from a 1998 uh, film, a rom-com. <clears throat> Sends shivers down my spine, just saying it. Uh, Probably not my favourite genre, but 
I'll tell you a bit more about the film after we've watched the introductory scene. I'm just talking while Janet finds it. Uh, great. Might flick the lights off too. All right, did anyone recognise that film? Yeah, what's the title? Oh, look, look at all. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't have mocked it. Um, sliding Doors. <clears throat> that was a young Gwyneth Paltrow. <clears throat> Excuse me. Just unlock this iPad. Uh, it's a fairly trivial example that kicks off the film in those first two minutes. But the film follows two lives of one person. Uh, her, her name, her character name is he Helen. Um, and they're two lives that unfold <clears throat> with very different outcomes for her career and her love life, all based on whether or not she caught that train. So the first scene just shows her catching the train and not catching the train, and everything that follows is dramatically different. I haven't seen it, of course. Um, <laughs> but in a nutshell, the film examines how tiny... This thing, this thing... Oh, yeah, I'm not going to put it here. Uh, it, how tiny, seemingly inconsequential uh, moments can alter the whole trajectory of a person's life. Unfortunately, it's a rom-com, um, and you know, as I said earlier, possibly the worst film genre available to us. But what can you do? Who likes rom-coms? Apologies. Okay. <laughs> when that film came out, I was in my early twenties, um, so it caused some serious angst because it really does get you thinking about every little thing that happens and what might have been, right? So. I'd miss a bus to college when I was studying jazz, and uh, there goes the love of my life, probably, on that bus, no <laughs> doubt. I'd stop for an amber light instead of accelerating through, and, well, who knows what I've just missed out on. Definitely a speeding fine, that's a good thing. But the film's central theme, or its central metaphor, sliding doors, it gets you thinking about every little decision that you make and the possible implications of all these different small decisions that you could make. People you could have talked to, but didn't talk to, and so on. But as you've probably picked up, or as you may be aware, sliding doors doesn't present us with an accurate or a very helpful theological outlook on the world. The subtext is, of course, that every tiny decision, and also things that we don't choose, decisions that others make on our behalf, can throw your whole life out of whack. Now, I'm starting here tonight because the idea behind the film highlights some central problems in Christian discernment that I want to scoot out of the way before we get started. Is this on? It is now. Now, the first of these is what um, I call a blueprint model. I don't know if you've ever heard this idea, but I want to talk about three <clears throat> models for discernment, and only one of these I want to commend to you. The first and the worst is the blueprint model. I don't know if you've used this terminology, but you're probably familiar with what I'm talking about. It comes back to what I said earlier about God having a perfect plan for your life. It's a problematic idea because what happens when you make one dicey decision? Well, the whole rest of your life is a mess because you've been thrown off 
the proverbial rails. It's the same reason uh, that there's no one person uh, out there who is God's one chosen partner for you. Because if you think about it, one person gets that wrong and there goes the rest of our chances, right? When I, when I met my wife, Katie, um, she's more of a romantic than I am, uh, I remember chatting with her about this, you know, the idea of the one. She was all romantic about whether or not I was the one and she was the one. And I said to her, frankly, this whole business about the one, it's not real. Love is not about finding the one. Um, and I'll admit, it wasn't what she wanted to hear. But I told her that there were probably a dozen women around that I could marry. <laughs> and that the issue was compatibility. The important questions were finding someone I could be compatible with and someone who we could mutually commit to each other for life. I said, that's love. She was like, well, that's not the kind of love I was looking for. Now, I do have this on, and you might want to ask me in the Q&A how this possibly happened. But you take my point, I hope. It's distinctly unhelpful to think of God's perfect plan for our lives like a blueprint, and if you make one decision, you're gone. Because we've all done that already, haven't we? Much better to use the language of God's purpose for our lives, because we all get derailed at times, and as you know, other people can derail you, make decisions that impact on your life. Our plans do get foiled, and it sometimes takes us some time, years even, to find God's purpose for our lives. But it's there, and God's purpose is unchanging, and it remains consistent. And yet God is a God who bends and flexes with the decisions we make. We see that throughout Scripture, with people who make bad decisions, and yet God calls them and works with the events in their lives to bring about his purposes. The person that comes to mind immediately is Joseph. Right? His brothers sell him into slavery. He goes on this winding downhill path and at the end of it all he says to his brothers in, in Genesis 50 verse 20 what you intended for bad God weaved it the Hebrew word there is to weave God used it ordained it but weaved it I love that like a tapestry that you weren't expecting he weaved it for good and that's an incredible perspective to have when you've been through that sort of stuff at the hands of others to be able to say God's purposes have remained through this and God has shaped me and as it turns out shaped this whole nation through these events. So within this blueprint model we also tend to get uh, certain language that's used. Some of that language is around open and closed doors. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that. <clears throat> we'll say things like God's opened a door for me in this job sector. Or we'll pray that God will open doors for one another in various spheres of life. I noticed you've been single for a while. I'm, uh, I'm praying that God will open a door for you. Well, thank you. I'm praying God opens a window on level three so I can push you through it. <laughs> but seriously, this language, it's, it's problematic because it assumes that God is always opening up a clear path, a clear doorway before leading us in a certain direction. Is that really true? Does God always lead us in the path 
of least resistance and open all the doors and make things possible? Of course not. Think of Jericho in the book of Joshua. Huge closed doors. And yet God says, go in. If ever there was a closed door, this was it. And does Joshua understand in that situation that he should definitely turn around, go somewhere else and find an open door? No. God says, you start marching around the city, do something unusual, and I'll open this door in a way that you've never seen before. And that's what happens. It's a very different dynamic, isn't it? God speaks, Israel hears and obeys, then God opens the door to use that language. Open doors mean nothing. I'm sorry to say it. But an opportunity in front of you is not God's will. If that's your thinking, that's a form of fatalism. Whatever's in front of me, whatever the opportunities are, it's got to be God's will because it's right in front of me and the door's open. What about when there are three open doors? What do you do with that situation? What about when there are none? What do you do with that situation? When an open door is understood to be God's will for your life, I'm sorry, but that is a form of fatalism. You're assuming that when it's open, it's God's will. And when you think about it, all that really amounts to at the end of the day is living a life that takes you along the path of least resistance. Walking through every door that opens is not a life of spiritual discernment. Let me demonstrate what I mean using scripture. In the New Testament, Paul uses this language. You may be aware of this. You may be thinking, hang on, doesn't the Apostle Paul, not this Paul, but the Apostle Paul, doesn't he talk about open doors? And you're right. In Colossians 4 verse 3, Paul says this, At the same time, pray for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word that we may declare the mystery of Christ. There Paul's asking for prayer for an open door so that ministry can happen. But it's interesting that Paul doesn't make the same sort of assumptions we sometimes do about what open doors mean. Look at this second example, 1 Corinthians 16. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me. Does that mean it's easy? And there are many adversaries. The wide open door and the many adversaries are both there. The wide door doesn't mean it's an open opportunity in front of me without any obstacles between me and that happening. This example is probably the best one. Because um, we often assume that the, the open door means an open opportunity without obstruction, without resistance, without blockage. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says this, When I came to Troas to proclaim the good news of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. Great. But what does the next verse say? Now, we don't know what this open door means. Maybe he got his visa into Turkey. Who knows? <laughs> but something's become open and available. But my mind could not rest angst, a lack of peace, and we'll come back to that because that's really significant. Because I did not find my brother Titus there, so I said farewell to them and went on to Macedonia. The open door that Paul describes here does not mean that he understands this to be God's will. There's something else at stake. He doesn't have peace. As he puts it, my mind could not rest. And so he doesn't stay in Troas because he doesn't have that peace. And we'll come back to that because peace is essential for discernment. 
Walking through every door that opens to you is not a life of spiritual discernment. Let me give you an example from, from my life. In 2009, about 10 years ago, my wife Katie and I were living in Melbourne and we had moved there in what we thought was a permanent move. We thought we were going to stay there um, and I was settling in to do my PhD. Now, I had a PhD supervisor locked in who I'd spoken to. I had even secured a scholarship for my studies there. We had a fantastic rate on an apartment right in the city, mates rates, uh, walking distance to the, to the university. We joined a church community. We were close to my family. Everything looked pretty sweet. And if you looked at all that and just sort of tabled it up for pros and cons, all the pros were there. And we were excited. Yeah, everything's fallen into place because we're in God's will. That's sometimes the way we think, isn't it? On the surface, it appeared that God had opened all the doors. But we went for a walk one afternoon and we got talking about being open to moving back to the UK, which is where we'd just come from. And we were praying that God would guide us and we were talking about the possibilities there. And I don't know what happened on that walk. I still don't know. I still don't quite understand it. But by the time we got back home, the possibility of moving back to the UK felt like a certainty to me. I still don't remember how it arose, but as we were considering it seriously, by the end of that talk, that walk, sorry, um, I felt convinced, and so did Katie, that moving back to the UK was the right thing to do. Now, at this point, you need to stop me. This is the point at which you say, hang on, Paul, you said you felt convinced. How were you convinced? What did that feel like? What were you thinking about? Were you making a list of pros and cons? Did you sense that God was part of this? Had you discussed it with anyone else? Those are very good questions. Thank you. <laughs> and yet I remember saying, and, and I'm glad you asked, because the main factor there was peace. And not the sort of peace that you conjure up because you want something. This was the sort of peace that surpasses understanding. What I mean by that, it was an irrational peace. It didn't make sense. We had everything worked out to stay in Melbourne. Why go back to the UK where I didn't have a supervisor, I didn't have a place to live, we didn't have a place to live, I didn't have funding, and so on. It seemed crazy. And yet I remember saying to Katie at the time, this really doesn't seem the sensible thing to do, and yet I feel an overwhelming sense of peace about packing everything up again and moving back to the UK. And so we did. And sometimes you only see that you were obedient in hindsight. Now in the moment, and I can't stress this enough, in the moment of making a faith decision, it is not easy. That's the toughest part. That's why it's called a life of faith, a walk of faith, a step of faith. It's really difficult, and often that's when the questions come at you. And it's that peace that gets you through that period so that you can look back and say, that was an irrational, overwhelming, sense of peace. Now we got to the UK, I wrote a list of 12 PhD supervisors, I just thought I'm going to make a wild list all, all around the whole world, what would my favourite, you know, my favourite people be to do my, my PhD with? And I had 12 there, I went straight for number one, sent an email, yes, I'll take you on. This is the guy in Durham. Now there's a little story behind that but I don't want to waste your time. I ended up working with my number one choice. Now, I won't say that the other guy, you know, quite, I won't tell you where he was, he's a very good supervisor and he may be listening tonight. Um, 
The other thing was, we got to Durham, and we thought, where are we going to live? And this guy randomly contacts me and says, we're moving out of this five-bedroom house, um, but the, the landlords will only rent it to theology postgrads. <laughs> there aren't, can't be too many of them about. And we just moved in. He goes, we're out at the end of the week. We moved into this five-bedroom house. Felt a little bit greedy because it was just the two of us. At least there were four of us when we left. Um, but, yeah, that's right. Um, but we, we ended up with accommodation there. And then I went to the university and I said, oh, I'm an Australian, but can I pay local fees? I'm married to a Brit. And they said yes. And so I ended up paying a third or a quarter of the fees that they would normally ask. And all these things worked out. And in hindsight, we could see taking that step, God did provide in all those ways that we couldn't have possibly known. Now, that's because we didn't accept all the open doors for us in Melbourne as being equated with God's will. If we'd stayed with the open doors in Melbourne, I guess we never would have discovered the open doors in Durham. And the decision was affirmed by a series of signs, which leads to my next point. The third thing that I want to say about the blueprint model, a blueprint model, is that it's often accompanied by talk of signs. Right? We talk about signs when we're looking for God's will. Um, sometimes we even talk about leaving out fleeces. Okay, you may or may not be familiar with that language. Who's familiar with the language of leaving out a fleece? Yeah, at least half of us. Now, just because it's biblical language doesn't mean that it's legit. So I just want to say a few things about that. You know, I've got to get my Old Testament bit in, don't I? After all, the Gideon narrative, it's not a story about a man of faith. It's about a man who lacks faith and God uses him anyway. Um, come and take interpreting the Old Testament and we'll talk more about that. But for those of you who don't read your Old Testaments enough, the, that was a joke. I'll insult you lots tonight, just get used to it. Uh, <clears throat> Judges chapter 6 is the story of Gideon. Uh, and God says to Gideon, I want you to go and fight against the Midianites and the Amalekites and a couple of termites. And just checking that you're awake. And Gideon says, all right. Uh, and then he decides... I'm not so sure about this. And so he gets a fleece, uh, a sheep's, you know, fleece, like a, like a sheepskin rug, I guess. And he says, I want this to be saturated in the morning and all the ground around it to be dry. And that's what, where this language comes of putting out a fleece. It's testing God. And he says to God, I want the fleece to be wet. And I want the ground to be dry. In the morning, the fleece is wet. He wrings it out and the ground is dry. And so the next night, he says... Very cheekily, I might add. He says to God, now I want the ground to be wet and the fleece to be dry. Now, funnily enough, God just goes along with this. And finally, Gideon goes off to war because he's, he's had his you know, three chances. But if you look at the, the verse here, Judges 6.36, it's interesting the way the story is told. This is Gideon talking. In order to see whether you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said, so he acknowledges that God's already told him that he's going to do this. I'm going to lay a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's dew on the fleece alone and it's dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will deliver Israel by my hand, as you have said. Twice he mentions that God's already told him he'll do this. And yet Gideon wants to put this fleece out. So I just want to say this is not a depiction of childlike faith. This is childish faith. This is someone who doesn't trust the words that they've been given. 
and so they seek a sign again and again on their own terms. Now, does this mean that we, whoop, how far can I get from that? Yep, there it is. How, does this mean that we shouldn't seek signs when we're seeking God's will? How many people here, don't worry, I'm not judging, how many people here have ever put out a fleece or asked for a sign? Come on, be honest. I'm going to, yeah, there it is. Come on. There's more of you. I know it. Um, you know, it's, it's very common. And sometimes in moments of desperation, especially, we ask for a sign. We want something to tell us that we're okay or that we're on the right track or whatever it is. And aren't signs just affirmations that we are on the right track? You know when you go for a drive or you're, you're in a place that you're not familiar with and you're driving around and you're not sure if you're where you think you are or if you're lost, what, what do you look for? The sign, yeah. The sign is an affirmation. Oh, there it is. I am where I thought I was. I'm in the right place. I'm in the right town. The exit's coming up, whatever it is. The, the difference here, I think the, the important thing for us to remember is there are signs that we demand from God and there are signs that God gives us to confirm things that God has already said to us. Is it okay to look for signs? Yeah, I think so. Isn't the Bible filled with examples of signs? Yeah, it is. Like for instance, uh, when Mary and Elizabeth are both having a baby, one with Jesus, one with John the Baptist, Elizabeth's baby leaps for joy at the sound of Mary's voice. And Elizabeth understands this to be a sign that Mary is indeed carrying in her womb the Son of God. And they celebrate that in, in the words that follow. Um, when I was living in Melbourne and decided to, to go over to uh, Canada to study, to do my Masters uh, at Regent, a series of signs occurred in sequence. But the important thing to note here is I didn't demand any of, any of them of God. Um, they just happened and they all ended up confirming the same thing. Um, I was just at college one day chatting with some friends and the vice principal came up to me, uh, surprised me and said, hey, can I talk to you for a minute, Paul? I said, sure. He said, I've got a plan for your life. Now, by the way, <laughs> if anyone ever says they've got a plan for your life, that's the first rule of some dodgy discernment going on, okay? God doesn't give other people plans for your life. We'll come back to that. But he said it with a twinkle in his eye and I knew that there was something else going on. But he said, I've got a plan for your life. I think you should go overseas, do some study at an American or uh, Canadian seminary and come back here and teach. Now, I'd never even considered such a thing, so I was a little bit taken aback. And I said, okay, I'll think about that and pray about it. And I did. And I started to pray about it. And a woman at church came up to me after church one morning and she said, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. And she said, I have a really clear sense this week as I was praying that you're going to go to North America. Um, does that ring true with you? And I said, uh, it does now. <laughs> I've, I've just been praying about this because someone else suggested it. And she said, well, I really think this is something you should keep praying about. And so I kept praying about it. And then something strange happened that's never happened to me before or since. I woke up one morning with the Bible reference in my head. Very clear Genesis 38. I better read that. I'll wake up. Yeah, I'll get up and read that. Is that what you would have done? Yeah. Okay. So I read that and it was a story of uh, Jacob's ladder. And I was reading that whole story and there was just this verse towards the end that says, if, um, oh, 
here we go. That's going to test my memory. Anyone got a Bible? Um, anyway, the, the, the general gist of it is if I go to this other land and you provide for me and I come back and I have a place to lay my head and food to eat and clothes to wear, then the Lord shall be my God. And as I read that verse, my heart just sort of leapt with this sense of God will provide if I do this and take this step in faith. Because I'd done some maths and it was going to cost about 60 grand. And I thought, I don't have 60 grand. Who has 60 grand? Um, and all the fees had to be paid up front and so on. Now, fast forward a few years, I was back from region and I had zero debt. And that verse meant even more to me because I had somehow done the studies, completed the degree, had a place to rest my head, food to eat, clothes to wear, and so on. And I felt that God had been true to that promise. Now, those signs that occurred in sequence all confirmed for me enough, because I would never, ever have gone on and just flown off into the other side of the world without the money to pay for such a thing. I did work five jobs while I was there. So, you know, that's part of it, if you're wondering how that little miracle happened. But the important thing there is I didn't demand of God. I don't think we can ever say to God, I will do whatever you ask, O Lord, if you do what I ask first. It's a little ironic, isn't it? And that's a little bit like what we see with Gideon. It's what we're saying and praying when we dictate the terms of our obedience to God. I'll do whatever you say if you do what I say first. Now, these are all elements of the Blueprint School of Thought. Um, a perfect plan, open and closed doors, uh, language of signs and things. Just be careful with this language. As you can see, it's biblical language, but there are just nuances to it and it needs to be used um, careful, carefully. A second and better alternative in terms of these models for discernment. I wonder if anyone could just chuck some aircon on. Is anyone else feeling warm? Yeah, it's not just me. It is on? Maybe just uh, turn it down to about 16. Um, if my wife's watching, that's what you would have done, isn't it? Yeah. She's British, so she likes the cold. Um, Let's move on. Second, second uh, sometimes I'm not always discerning what, you know, what to say out loud and what to keep to myself. <laughs> Some would say it's ironic that I'm talking about discernment tonight. They'd say, why don't you start with your own filter, Paul? Um, second model of discernment is sometimes referred to as the wisdom model. Now, a wisdom school of thought is a lot, lot better. But basically, the idea here is that if you read through Scripture carefully and obey what you read, you will become more holy, more Christ-like. To use theological jargon, you will be sanctified. And as you become more like Christ over time, your decisions will get better, wiser. And the biblical genre that most directly uh, addresses spiritual discernment is the wisdom literature. Books like uh, Job and Ecclesiastes, some Psalms, Proverbs, especially Proverbs. <clears throat> Now, Proverbs stresses that dumb decisions are made by ignorant people. Sounds harsh. I'll say it again. Dumb decisions are made by ignorant people. The point in Proverbs is that you overcome ignorance through knowledge. So as my dad uh, often said to me as a teenager, you should know better, Paul. As my dad said to me in my 20s, you should know better. As my dad said to me in my 30s, no, I'll stop there. But the idea in Proverbs is that if you know better, you do better. 
You choose better. Wisdom is a kind of moral knowledge. In other words, the wise person knows the good, desires the good, and ultimately chooses the good. And at first we're, we might be surprised to read this, but Proverbs suggests very strongly that the wise are righteous and that fools are wicked. There's a direct correlation between a person's morality, their goodness, and their ability to understand and to discern. A couple of verses. Whoever belittles another, which is not a very nice thing to do, lacks sense. It talks about it being a matter of knowing better, intelligence. But an intelligent person remains silent. Another one, a ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. Right? See, the, the lack of understanding and the wickedness go together. But one who hates unjust gain will enjoy a long life. So this, this correlation between a person's morality, their goodness, and their ability to understand and discern, again, it comes back to this idea that a wise person knows the good, they desire the good, and that enables them to choose the good. Now, let me just cut to the chase, because if I spend too long on this, we won't have time for some other things. Um, <clears throat> there's a problem with this model, the wisdom model, because living wisely and choosing well are not enough. It's great. It's better than the blueprint model which leaves people feeling ashamed and guilty and depressed. But wisdom, And wisdom is me measured by good decision-making. I think that's fair. Knowledge is not enough. We need to learn how to apply that knowledge to the details of our lives. That's part of what it means to be mature in Christ. But there's more, isn't there? There's a third possibility that does not leave us in despair when we make mistakes and which does not leave us feeling that God has created us and then stepped back and left us to our own devices. In other words, God isn't just interested in us on a sort of macro level. You know, here you go, here's the tools for wisdom, see how you go. It has always been the conviction of historic creedal Christianity that God speaks to his people afresh in each generation in a personal way. That God's children are invited, that is you are invited to hear the voice of God again and again and again in times of choice. You, individually. Now communal discernment is another whole bag of fish, kettle of fish. <laughs> but here we're talking about individual discernment, choosing well for your own life. And God does speak to individuals about how they can make better, decision, better decisions in their own times of choice. So this third model is the conviction that discernment is about hearing the voice of Jesus today. That's the simplest way I can think to put it. It's about hearing the voice of Jesus today. In other words, because God is interested in you on a micro level. God continues to speak and to direct your particular path and he takes very seriously your current circumstances. The problem with the wisdom model is just that God has no immediate involvement in your big decisions. The emphasis is on gaining wisdom, but without also accounting for the voice of Jesus in the moment of decision. So, the blueprint model leads us astray, 
The wisdom model is better, but ultimately leaves us to our own devices. What we seek in discernment, and what I want to talk about for the rest of our time tonight, is hearing the voice of God. We seek a direct word from Jesus spoken to us in times of choice. Because there are times in our lives, aren't there, when we don't just want to be wise. Wisdom is not enough. We don't just want to make a, a wise choice. We want to make the best choice. We want to make the best choice that we could possibly make. This is not about WWJD. What would Jesus do? That's another way of putting it. That's one level of maturity to say, oh, Jesus behaved like this and we should use him as a model and try and think what would he do in this situation. I would argue that it's a higher level of maturity, Christian maturity, to recognize that it's not just about copying Jesus. It's the recognition that you have been created as you and that God wants to lead your life in a specific, not just a general way. So it's about WWID. I wonder if those bracelets would sell. What would I do? Yeah, not, it doesn't have much impact, does it? Okay, so we've reviewed these main three models for discernment. Um, and now I just want to talk about this issue because if we take seriously the idea that God wants to speak to us individually, personally, then the question becomes, how? How do I discern the voice of God in my moments of choice? Now, generally speaking, Christian spirituality is a spirituality of response. God speaks, we hear, we obey. The difficulty with that, to state the obvious, is that when we look at the Bible, for instance, there are lots and lots of stories of people uh, hearing God's voice and obeying, aren't there? But we don't get the how, do we? It doesn't seem fair. It almost seems a little bit too clear in the Bible. This is a question that comes up year after year, semester after semester, when I teach the Interpreting the Old Testament course. Because we read verses that say things like, and the Lord said to Adam, and the Lord said to Eve, and the Lord said to Cain, and the Lord said to Moses and Abraham. And so it goes right through these conversations. And they're a bit, they, they, they tease us because we want to say, whoa, whoa, give us some more. How? Was it an audible voice? Was it a sense, a discernible feeling? How did God speak to these people? And how did they know how to respond? In the New Testament, it doesn't get much better. Paul says, the Lord said to me this, and I said this back. And the Lord said, let's have a cup of tea. And I said, do you want a biscuit with that? <laughs> that's, that's four Corinthians. But <laughs> these, these conversations, they just seem to flow. And we wonder, what's going on here? There are lots of these instances of discernment. There are a lot of conversations, but it's actually a bit of a tease. It's very rare for a person to hear an audible voice directing them. There's only one occasion in my life that God spoke to me with such remarkable clarity that I absolutely knew it was God speaking to me. And I don't know if I have time to share that with you. But even on that occasion, it was far from audible. It wasn't audible. Do you want to hear that or shall we? All right, I'll tell you that one and then I've got six pages so I'm going to start talking quicker. I've just, time flies, doesn't it? I haven't even got to the good stuff. All right, I was studying at Bible college. I used to love walking around on this hilltop. There was this hill that just fell away and I could see the lights of the town and the lights of the stars and I felt a bit like Abraham, let's be honest. I would walk around on this hilltop and pray and just talk to God about what was going on in my life and family and friends and all that. And I used to go out there quite regularly. One night I was out there walking back and forth with this in my hand 
just enabling me to walk right across the room. And I heard a sound behind me over near the, the chapel. But it was dark and I couldn't see, so I walked over there to see what was going on. And when I had to get quite close before I could see that there was someone just sitting there in the shadows. And I said, oh, sorry, mate, didn't see you there. And I went back to praying on the hill. And as I was walking back and forth, I, as clear as anything, as I was talking to God, I felt like God said to me, but not audibly, go and talk to that guy. Now, it would be good for you to say to me, how did you hear that? So let me try and articulate. It was as clear as a voice, except that I couldn't hear it, but the words were, go and talk to that guy. It was very clear in my mind. And in what followed, I tried to keep praying because I didn't want to go and talk to that guy. I didn't know who he was. And I said to God, I don't know who that guy is. And I'm certainly not going to go and talk to him unless you give me something to say. So I tried to keep praying in the way that I had been, but it, it was almost like I felt there was this block. So it was like God said, I'm not listening. I want you to go and talk to that guy. And I said to God in this little uh, exchange, I feel like you're telling me to go and talk to that guy. I feel like that's really clear. But I don't know what to say. So if I start walking towards him, you're going to have to give me some words, right? You're going to have to give me something to say because I got nothing. So I turned around and I'm thinking, here it comes, walking towards him, Lord, <laughs> anytime now. And I get really close until I'm standing in front of him and there's nothing. I thought, damn it. So I, darn it. And I, I, he's looking at me, so I, I said, I, this is going to sound weird, but I feel like God told me to come over here and talk to you. And he patted the ground next to him and said, can you sit down for a minute? And I sat down and he said, do you ever wonder whether God's really there? And I said, no. I, you know, we're, we're here at a Bible college. <laughs> so I said, I, I, I quite enjoy being out here talking to God and pretty certain that he's there and responding and so on. And he said, he said, I'm really having some doubts. And he said, I was just sitting here tonight. I know you, you pray here a bit. And he said, I said to God tonight, God, if you're real, make that guy come and talk to me. And my heart jumped. And I said, oh, dude, it all makes sense now. <laughs> and I prayed with him. And then I floated back to my bedroom. I, literally. I mean, I, I was on such a high after that because at the time I had no idea whether I was missing something or if God was speaking to me. And then I suddenly recognized, ah, that was the exact thing he needed to hear was this might sound weird, but uh, I feel like God wanted me to come and talk to you. And so that was, I don't know how he tells that story these days, but I sometimes think about him still and wonder what impact that might have had on him. It certainly had a big impact on me. But the point that I'm trying to make is I could only tell in hindsight that it was in fact God who spoke to me. Um, some of you are already familiar with the problem here, with hearing God. It's in the hearing, right? I know that some of you tonight are here, really keen, thinking to yourselves and maybe saying out loud, I would happily respond to God, but I just can't hear what he's trying to say. And I would love to respond and be responsive, but I, I'm not hearing this voice as clearly as I'd like to. Why is this? What's the problem? In Christianese, the word we use is sin. You and I are stained with an inner resistance 
that makes it very difficult for us to hear God speak to us. To put that differently, we're all addicted. We are all addicted to self-centeredness, to putting ourselves first. I know. <laughs> you gave up your Thursday night, you've come out, and I'm just insulting you some more. <laughs> you're an addict and you're sinful. <laughs> I am too. Okay. The speaker's calling you selfish. And yes, that's right, you are. You're incredibly selfish. And so am I. We are so much more self-centered than we realize. And one of the first things, I say this because it's part of the big picture. If you want to hear God's voice in your life, one of the first things you must recognize is that the biggest problem standing in your way is you. It's your self-centeredness. Now, another way of saying that is there are things that you want to hear from God, aren't there? There are things you'd love to hear from God and there are things that you really don't want to hear from God. Let me just show you this little cartoon to lighten the mood, eh? It's a special hearing aid. It filters out criticism and amplifies compliments. Just yesterday, on a more serious note, I had an experience here at work that involved me making a judgment about someone else. Now, due to my sinful nature, I had pushed all the blame for a situation that had arisen outside myself and placed it fair and square on someone else's shoulders. But as I was trying to forget about that tension and just get on with things, God spoke to me clearly and quietly through someone who I was talking to, someone who knows me fairly well and who I know. That person didn't realize that God was using them to say anything to me, but I certainly felt and heard the voice of Jesus in their words telling me to go and make an apology and seek reconciliation. Now, the outcome of that situation isn't so important, and I don't need to go into the details, but what I'm getting at here is I didn't want to hear that from God. It wasn't what I wanted to hear. What I wanted to hear was something like, hey, Paul, don't worry. You're okay. You're always right. There are a lot of annoying people in this world and I'll protect you from them. I will comfort you and help you to deal with the annoying people. Now, if God had said that to me, I, I, amen, amen. Thank you, Lord. But that's not what I heard. What I heard God saying gently was, Paul, you are the annoying person in this situation. You have caused some strife. You have become a source of tension and you need to go and make things right. And that was not easy to hear. And it was, not, it was even harder to get out of my, get off my seat at my desk and go and make things right. But I'm glad to say I did. And I'm glad to say it felt like a huge weight lifted off my shoulders. We need to begin with the awareness that we are all already so prone to self-deception that we are starting on the back foot. And we'll come back to this because hearing God's voice is such a subjective matter, isn't it? We can't measure this. We can't say, okay, what are the factors here? Ah, yes, that's God's voice. <coughs> You've got A plus B plus C, done. If you lack a basic self-awareness and understanding of yourself, you will struggle to discern God's voice. I'd even go a step further and saying that hearing God's voice and knowing yourself are two sides of the same coin. Actually, that's not me. That's John Calvin. <laughs> I'm stealing it. Uh, and I can't because if John Frederick is here, he will pick me up on it later. 
is he? He's not. So I could have got away with that one. <laughs> oh, never mind. When we're talking about discernment, though, we start talking about the emotions, and I'm only just getting to the heart of the talk, and it's 8 o'clock. What happened? Okay, I just want to talk about the relationship between these two things. The, reasons emotions, the reason that emotions are so important for our subject tonight on discernment is that the language we, it's the language we use to talk about discernment, isn't it? I was praying about it, and I got this sense. You've heard that before? I've been considering this decision, and I feel like God is saying, that's the way we talk about discernment, about understanding what God is saying to us. And I know some of us think, ah, oh, it's so airy-fairy language and it's, it's so subjective and it's not grounded or rooted in anything firm. I feel this and I sense that. I feel like God is calling me to marry Betty. Well, are you aware that Betty's already married? <laughs> I mean, our feelings, our feelings are one thing. But how do we discern that the feelings are not just our own feelings. They often push us towards certain choices, but they're not enough on their own. As we consider discernment tonight, I just want to quickly look at a, a real brief um, overview of history, church history, because I want to suggest that the tradition of the church does give us some of the guidelines that we don't get in the Bible. That is, 2,000 years of the Holy Spirit speaking to the church in certain ways has led to a certain pattern that has emerged. And just very quickly, we've got Ignatius of Loyola, a Spanish Jesuit, John Wesley, an English Methodist, Jonathan Edwards, American Puritan. Those are the books on the far right where we get some of this material. Um, you may know Wesley's uh, sermons are mentioned in the basis of union. The spiritual exercises contain, uh, one, one of the major parts is rules for discernment. And, you know, in preparing this talk, I just thought, oh, this is a whole course. Of course it's a whole course. Three hours on each of these guys would be insufficient. Um, but I'll just try and, if you, if you can work with me and sort of assume that the things I'm saying have some cre credibility and some, some back backing, then I can sort of move a little bit quicker. But what these three guys all emphasize that spiritual discernment, listening to God, is a matter of being attentive to your emotional state. Being attentive to your emotional state. In other words, you can't just use your mind. It's not a rational issue. You have to attend to what is going on in your heart. Now, we live in a, a very fortunate time, actually, where emotional intelligence is valued and there is so much more going on in scientific inquiry and philosophical inquiry around the area of emotions. They're being taken seriously, far more seriously than they ever have been in the past. Um, the basic common theme shared here is that when you are seeking to hear God's voice, you ask yourself, what emotions am I feeling? Now, that doesn't mean uh, whatever emotions you're feeling will tell you yes or no in some simple way. What are some of the things that we would consider positive emotions, for instance? If I say there are positive emotions, what comes to mind straight away? Joy. Joy. Peace. Hope. Hope. Love. Love. Patience. Now we're just going into a list of virtues. Great. <laughs> I don't know if, uh, I'm not sure if patience is, a, is a, uh, uh, an emotion. Excitement, yes, very excitement. Now, if I said, what are some negative emotions? Call some out. Things that, sadness, anger. anger. Fear. Sorry? Fear. I hear, I'm hearing beer. <laughs> and I say amen. But I'm sure, oh, fear. Yes, fear. And, any others? Envy, good. 
So these are all things that we think of as negative emotions. Now, to take what these guys are saying seriously, we have to think a little bit differently about emotions and not think of emotions as either virtues or vices. They provide data about ourselves that God uses to guide us. Okay, so bear with me in that. I'll say that again because it's quite a huge statement. Um, um, there is, let me put it even more strongly. No emotion in itself is sinful or wrong. I've come to believe that that's true over many years of uh, testing this. No emotion is sinful or wrong. Now, we might hear the word lust and we think, come on, if you're lusting after something, that's got to be wrong. But the lust itself, whether it's for a person or a thing or whatever, the lust itself can tell you something incredibly important about yourself and what God is doing in you, where you are trying to fill a void, what, what it is that drives you towards decision-making in your life. Do you see what I'm saying? If you think of the emotion as, I know it sounds very sort of detached and scientific, but as data that helps you to understand yourself, it's a very different perspective on emotions and the place of emotions. Now, another thing I could do just to get you to test your emotions right now in this moment is just to say, how does it make you feel right now to hear me say no emotion is sinful or wrong? Do a little bit of analysis. Some of you will feel liberated by that statement. Others of you are feeling a bit agitated, a bit upset, a bit angry. I'm not sorry. How dare you? How dare you give people permission to feel all kinds of emotions, including anger and lust? Because you might be thinking, I've been the victim of someone's anger or lust or resentment or whatever it is. But you haven't been the victim of the emotion. You've been a victim of an action that was unprocessed, that came from that emotional state. Now, we can revisit this in the Q&A, and I suspect we'll have to. But what I'm getting at is that your emotions are an invitation to self-understanding. And if self-understanding goes hand in hand with hearing the voice of God, then we need to pay close attention to our emotions. It's not that helpful if you start feeling angry to, to start stressing about your anger and feeling guilty of it and then ashamed of it, anxious to get rid of it. Because when you do that, your anger gets compounded, doesn't it? By guilt and shame and anxiety and convoluted by those other elements and you end up lashing out even harder. The most helpful thing you can do when you're angry is to ask, what is happening to me? What is happening inside me? What button just got pushed that I am in a rage so quickly? What trigger from my childhood has just been flicked? Does this situation really warrant the anger that I'm feeling right now? What's beneath this heat in my face? What's beneath this racing heart, this clenched jaw? Your emotions are an invitation to understand yourself better. Now that's half the ticket price right there. One more insight like that and we're done. <laughs> I'm getting a look from Simon that says, you're done anyway, mate. Um, <clears throat> I can't urge you, who knows anything about Brené Brown here? Read some stuff first. Look her up, she's fantastic. Um, what I'm talking about here is developing what Brené Brown calls emotional literacy. So here at Trinity, we, we encourage biblical literacy. Yeah? Know your Bibles. Right? If, you, if you want to live a Christian life, understand the story which you've been adopted into because you're now part of that narrative. Brené Brown talks about emotional literacy. She says... Most people 
can only identify three emotions. Happy, sad, and pissed off. <laughs> angry. Happy, sad, and angry. That's what I meant to say. That's how she puts it. Happy, sad, and angry. Um, but she says we should be able to identify 30 emotional states. That's far more healthy. And so she encourages people with children, talk to your children about how they're feeling and get them to talk beyond just happy, sad, and angry. Here's that quote I mentioned, uh, John Calvin. <clears throat> Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And hear this next statement, quite profound. But as these are connected by many ties, it is not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. They're so intimately bound up. And he's not the only one to say this. Self-understanding is essential. Now, I had a whole bunch of principles here that I was going to talk through uh, for discernment, but I, I sense that I'm running out of time. Um, I can probably go to quarter past. What do you reckon? Yeah. Is everyone okay? All right. I'll try and go through these fairly quick. Um, one, of the, one of the important uh, principles here is it's very hard to hear God's voice when you have white knuckles. Do you know what I mean by that? What gives you white knuckles? When do they turn white? When you're holding on to something really tightly. Have you ever prayed like this? Now what I mean by that is that sometimes there's a choice before us and we are trying to discern, but we desperately want option A. Lord, please guide me, but I really want option A. I'm open to option B as long as option A comes first. You know, there's this sort of prayer and we're just holding on to, I have to have this. Now, uh, Ignatius, who I mentioned earlier, he talks about consolation and desolation as two basic states. Consolation means you're at peace. Desolation, angst. Never make a decision in angst, he says, in desolation. Don't make decisions in that state of mind. You can't think clearly. And he would say, even more strongly, the Holy Spirit won't lead you in that state. Everything's in turmoil. Um, my grandpa used to put it like this. He used to just say, peace is an umpire. When you're trying to make a decision, peace is an umpire. When you have the peace, you know you're in a place where you can make the decision. <clears throat> Origen, this is going way back now to the second century, says this, we only discern well when we cultivate a freedom from preoccupations and prejudices that unconsciously govern our attitudes and responses. We only discern well when we cultivate freedom from those preoccupations. Only in peace do we see the world rightly. Um, I won't give a whole uh, illustration of this, but when Katie and I were discerning where to go on that missions trip where we ended up in Argentina, we spent half a day just writing down pros and cons for different options and letting go. And I can't encourage this enough. There's a process that you can do, an Ignatian process. Uh, maybe we can talk more about that. If you come to a point where you're looking for some guidance, email me and I'll shoot you some resources. But I've done this a number of times now where I've got to make a decision and I know that I'm holding on to one option over the other. And I actually have to spend some time in prayer, and I mean a few hours just sitting and being still 
and letting go. And doing this with my hands is very helpful. Um, learning to pray like this and genuinely bringing myself to a position before God where I can say, you could, you could tell me either of these options now and I'd be okay with it. And I know that that's true. And it's really important to get to that place if you're making a big decision. I'm just going to scoot through lots of stuff here. Let's close with some practical tips. Uh, all of these could be unpacked with anecdotes or with other information, but I'll leave it up to you because I think it's only fair. Some of you have come tonight because you wanted to ask a question. Um, so I'll just wrap it up with a few tips here. One, discernment is always for the present. And the best way that I can think to put that is discernment is about God's best for today. That means you may marry someone, wake up the next morning and think, oh, what have I done? If you're in that situation, there is no going back. You have made a covenant agreement, a binding covenant agreement. The question is not, how do I go back in time? The question is, what is God's best for today? We make bad decisions sometimes. Sometimes the best decision we can make is, I screwed up yesterday, so I'm going to have to make peace with whoever it was. That's the way forward. Okay, God's best for today is a great phrase that helps me to just get a sense of what discernment is really all about. It takes all of your reality into account, takes it seriously. Second one, only you can discern for you. I hinted at this earlier. Someone else tells you that they have a sense of God's will for your life, just say, on your bike, mate. I'll, I'll suss that out with God myself. Uh, three, self-knowledge is vital, and I've talked about that a bit, hopefully enough. Four, humility is essential, and this comes back to recognizing that we are so self-centered. The heart is deceitful, right? We, we tell ourselves things, um, what we want to hear, basically. It's also important, I just want to add this, it's also important because even when you recognize an emotional state, you might think positive, negative emotions. You might feel, ah, oh, I'm feeling joyful about this, so it's a good thing. What about when you feel joyful because the person who's been working next to you for a few years, who you really don't like, just lost their job? And that fills you with joy. That's not a good joy, is it? There's also such a thing as a righteous anger, a justified anger over injustice, corruption. And when you feel that, you don't need to feel guilty and ashamed about it because that anger can drive you to do some very productive things. Moving on. Sometimes our decisions is, oh, our decision is only confirmed in hindsight. And I've probably illustrated that and talked about that a little bit. I better leave it there. Um, as you can tell, I just would love to talk about this longer and um, create a course around it and have all of us teaching and all of you guys. A class this full. Can you, wouldn't that be good? Just, just turn this around. Can I just force that? There they all are. There's the class. There's the classroom. Ah, waving and everything. I think I've just broken this thing because I've forced it. Okay, um, I'll hand back to Simon for some Q&A and we'll see where we go from here. Well, thank you. Could we thank Paul for... His thought, his thought, his prayer, his time, his energy, his vulnerability. Thank you for that um, very much. Are there questions here? Um, are there any, does anyone have a question that's in the front of their mind that they'd like to ask? Yes, Craig. Uh, 
Would you agree there are times when all of those three models can get worse in people's lives? Um, I'm just I'm trying to think what with that. Uh, the question was, uh, are there times when all three models could be at work in people's lives? Um, I'm trying to think of an example of what that would look like. The first model, the blueprint model, I think it's just got too many problems. It's fraught with difficulty because as soon as something goes wrong, you know, everything's gone wrong. But I do think that there, the wisdom model, I can understand why there are books that promote that wisdom model, that just say, learn to live within that biblical worldview, um, learn to be wise, um, and you will make better decisions and be more Christ-like. So there are times that I think that, I mean, of, often in our lives, that serves us quite well. But there are times where we need more than that. As I was suggesting, there are times when it's not just enough to make a wise decision, we want to make the best decision. So I'm not, I see, them, I see the models as a little bit working against each other in some ways. But if you have an example, I'd be happy to hear that. But thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Are there any other questions here? Yeah, Brian. I'm not sure how to frame it, Paul, but there's a sense, and you talked about being the best decision for the present. I'm not sure what the actual wording was. God's best for today. But there's a sense that I think we're on a journey that there is continuing discernment, and mm. it's not about one decision is the clincher, mm. but rather our ongoing discernment is that we continue on that journey trying to listen to the voice of Jesus, mm -hmm. and um, sometimes we get it right and sometimes we get it wrong, but if we continue on that journey together, mm. um, and others speak into that, it's, it's not the one event. No. No. Um, so the question is, with that, that, that terminology... Uh, God's best for today, aren't we on a, a journey? Isn't it a matter of working things out? Tell me if I get your question right or wrong. But it's not a matter of just getting one thing right, but it's rather there's much more, there's more pieces to the puzzle, maybe yeah, is one way to put it. No, more nuanced. My answer to that would be that that's precisely the reason for that phrase, God's best for today, because it takes into account all the little things that you got wrong yesterday, um, which are part of your journey. And you won't get everything right all the time. Um, and in big decisions, you might make some bad big decisions, um, some good small decisions and so on. And that's the nature of our lives. And that's the wonder of a God who has a purpose for us, who is working with us on our side. And we are seeking to determine, to determine given my current reality, this, the ways that I'm doing well, the ways that I'm doing badly, the relationships I'm in, the impacts that other people are having me, having on me, all of that, what is God's best? And so I think in some ways that phrase helps to capture the fact that life is complex and there are always good and bad things, forces at work, if you like. Good question. Thank you, Brian. Um, just to, to remind those who might be uh, watching on the live feed, um, you can email your questions to ask at trinity.qld.edu.au. Um, we have had uh, a question come through on the feed and it's sort of a hypothetical question, Paul. So yep. uh, the question is, um, if you're praying and you say to God, um, what do you want me to do? Do you think there's ever a circumstance where God then says to us, well, what do you want to do? Yes. Like, should I put the blue T-shirt on this morning or the yellow one? 
Uh, with regard to more significant... Oh, <laughs> sorry. Well, I, I do think that there are some things in life... I've, I've talked to some people who have said, what should I do in this situation? And I genuinely think it doesn't matter. Like, I, I should probably have an example at hand before I say something like that. But I think that there, there are times in our lives... I, I think this of Jesus' life. I think Jesus had creative freedom. I don't think Jesus lived a blueprint life. There were times he could have healed there or healed there, and there were demands on him everywhere. Um, some of that's quite clear, that there was that tension, and there were choices to be made. Um, and I think... So the question is, do we ever ask God for God's will on an issue and, and God's response would be, hypothetically, you decide? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, and I think sometimes the decision is between two goods or two bads, and we just have to make that decision. Um, but even then, be prayerful. See, the difference between coincidence and, and God's guidance is that in one situation, you're just waiting for things to happen, and you say, coincidence. As soon as you bring prayer into that equation, I'd say, there is no more coincidence. As soon as I stop praying, the coincidences stop, as someone put it. I think if you keep your life undergirded by prayer, then you can trust God to be involved in the details. Does that make sense? It does, thank you. Now, the reason I'm standing closer to you is because apparently I need to be closer so I can be heard on the, the live ah, stream. Okay, well, um, are there any other questions? Yes. Um, Paul, I've heard a visiting professor to our psychology department here at EQ make a comment about compassion. Mm. And he made a statement that compassion is not a motivation, it's a motivation. And he's built a whole realm of psychology around mm. No, that's okay. No, that's okay. In, in psychology... Oh, that wouldn't have been heard, would it? So the question was, a visiting professor to UQ was making the argument that compassion is not an emotion but a motivation. Um, what do I make of that? Yeah. So Jonathan Edwards made, makes a distinction between feelings and, and the affections, so his book, Religious Affections, and he would make a distinction... Um, and in psychology, I've got a friend here tonight who's a psychologist, so I have to be careful what I say. But I believe that there are uh, distinctions that are made, again, between feelings and emotions um, and motivations, and that all of those are distinct. So it may be, because I'm no psychologist, though I'd love to be, uh, <laughs> that's a weird thing to say, um, it may be that, that those distinctions are made in different fields of psychology or philosophy and theology um, around different nuances. I'm not sure what to make of it. I, that does make some sense to me, though. Compassion is something that motivates you, but I still think it's something you feel as well. So, yeah. Thank you. Good question. Um, can I ask, John, um, yeah. well, you mentioned that, obviously, tonight we've been talking about individual determinants, yes. mm. um, not the community determinants. But can you see any overlap, or do the models, can the models hmm. be applied to community discernment? So the question is, tonight's been focused on individual con uh, discernment. Is there overlap with communal discernment? <sighs> community brings a whole uh, bunch of problems with it. Um, because, because you've got a whole lot of individuals <laughs> trying to discern in the same issue. Um, communal discernment is almost... Well, first of all, we live our lives to try to please communities. Um, and so even when we are making, when we are discerning what's best for a certain 
decision that we are making individually. There are different communities pushing and pulling on us, family, peers, college, uh, teachers, whatever it is, children, and they're all pulling us in different directions and they contribute to that decision-making process. When it comes to discerning together, I mean, I remember do, when I did this whole course at a master's level on discernment, at the end of it, he said, this has all been about individual. Now, here's some issues with communal and it looked like it was a whole other plethora of, of complications and issues. Um, but in terms of what, what they have in common, um, one, of the, one of the most valuable things about individual discernment is having friends who know you. Because I've, I've talked tonight about the importance of knowing yourself. You can only know yourself so well. Blind spots are called blind spots for a reason. I have lots of them. Um, I've discovered over time, as good friends have told me, hey Paul, you got a blind spot here. And I say, what? Why didn't you tell me 20 years ago? And seriously, that, that's, that's the importance of community, that we can help one another to start discerning better because we can see issues in other people's lives. So I think that's the most significant overlap for me is that you need community to discern well individually and then when you start trying to discern together as a community, the more you know one another and one another's proclivities, like, oh yeah, you're discerning that, but let's be honest, you always lean in that direction when we come to decision making, you know, that kind of thing. So I think knowing ourselves and knowing one another, um, that would be the biggest overlap that I see there, if that's helpful. Thank you. We've had another uh, question come through on the feed, which, okay. which just, uh, I guess, reflected on you speaking about the way of wisdom and that wisdom wasn't always um, going to allow you to make the right decision. Mm. Um, and what's the difference between a wise decision and the right decision in your mind? The question. Hmm wise decision and the right decision. Um, I, guess, I guess the difference is that a wise decision might not be the right decision. It's that difference between um, choosing well um, and then when there is a moment that God wants to direct you quite specifically. Like for instance, uh, maybe just to use an anecdote that I, that I used earlier, I think if I'd stayed in Melbourne and Katie and I had stayed in Melbourne, and I'd done a PhD in Melbourne, and we'd lived in that house that was all worked out, that, that seemed wise, right? All of those things were in place. Um, it's just that the right decision meant trusting in God, trusting in that irrational peace, that it meant something, and it actually led to some opportunities that I don't think I'd be here right now, for instance, if I had taken that opportunity, uh, just because of the way that things pan out. But it's very difficult to talk hypothetically about things in the past when the path that we carved through life can only ever take one track. So you can only ever look back at the decisions you did make and say that was wise or unwise, that was the right decision or the wrong decision. Uh, it's, it, a lot of this is hard to talk about in abstract. That's why I've tried to fill the night with some anecdotes too to, to put some flesh and bones on things. And we appreciate that very much. Maybe time for just one or two more questions. Or on the way to go somewhere else and stop off and buy bread or whatever, 
and after it's finished saying, turn back at the next opportunity five times. Recalculating. Says, All right, go this way, you know. So yeah. I feel quite sure that God can, you know, rearrange things for ultimate purpose. So it, it gives me some hope that we don't have to mess up completely. I mean, there there is a way that we can still overcome things that we get wrong because we will get them wrong. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm hearing a few things in what you're saying. I think that the thing that comes to my mind that I'd want to assure you of is that it's not just a matter of we can step off and God can God is faithful and will bring us back to his purposes. It's more than that. God is redemptive. That means that God can use the mistakes to actually turn them for good. That's what Joseph's words why they're so significant. What you intended for evil, God weaved his good purposes into that. And I've seen that again, time and time again. I've made some bad decisions in my life. I've gone down the wrong path for a little while. I've, but coming back from that doesn't mean, oh, I'm back on track. You know, that was a whole waste of time, but I'm back on track. It's that God redeems that time and gives me understanding of people who might be living in that situation uh, still. And it makes me compassionate. I, I've lost a lot of my judgmental edge. It's still there a little bit, but I've lost a lot of it from being in situations where I've been ostracized and so on. So I think it's, it's important to remember God doesn't just keep pulling us back to the path. That's sort of a variation on the blueprint model, but that God genuinely redeems the terrible things in life and makes them wonderful. I mean, Paul, Saul to Paul is a good example of that. Thank you. Maybe time for just one more. Um, so the question is around what happens when you look back and you think I've, I've made the wrong decision, I've gone the wrong way. Um, what comes to mind is, again, Ignatius, um, the consciousness examine, um, which is a, a spiritual discipline or exercise that has five steps. And um, I've found it very helpful. It's a way of reflecting on the day, reflecting where there was light or darkness or whatever metaphors you want to use, where you heard God's voice and were... Um, obedient to that and where you can recognize at the end of the day that you actually probably could have discerned better uh, and you chose badly and that's a regular exercise I mean people in monasteries do that probably three times a day <laughs> so regular consciousness examine or conscious examine um, but it's it's a process I think that's really helpful because sometimes we don't stop until life stops us that is a crisis massive you know, blow out, something happens and we crash and we literally have to stop and pick up the pieces. If you can get into a habit of more regularly stopping and saying, where did I do the right thing today? Where did I bless someone? Where was there light and where was there darkness? Where did I choose badly or out of resentment or whatever? Those little, those quick stop-offs will help you um, to discern better in the future.
Thank you. Appreciate that question very much. Mm. Folks, can we thank Paul again for... So we come to the conclusion of our evening. Um, there is actually, Paul, well, there were two questions that formed in my mind. I'm not going to ask you to answer them, but one was you obviously got married to Katie. Is Katie okay? <laughs> you know, just, no, okay, don't answer that one. But um, the, other, the other question is not so much a question for Paul, but a question for all of you, because I'm wondering whether for anyone here there's a sense in which your emotions tonight have helped you discern that it is the will of God that you engage in some theological study. <laughs> now that might feel like shameless product placement, but it's actually not, because my conviction is that it is the will of God for all of us to be better equipped to serve Him, to represent Him in and through our lives, in every aspect of our lives. And um, if that were the case for you, I just want to say that here at Trinity Theological College, uh, we would love to to serve you and equip you in relation to that. And I guess there were just three things that I wanted to, uh, um, to briefly mention, um, and there might be some slides that come up to correspond with these. But the first is simply to say that here at Trinity, there are many accredited subjects and courses that we offer. And if you feel like you're the sort of person who perhaps needs the discipline of a structured course of formal academic study, um, to work through something and to get the most out of it, and you would like to work towards a bachelor's degree, a diploma, um, a postgraduate degree, uh, we really would love to talk to you. And please don't leave tonight. This feels like an evangelist's... Uh, just close your eyes and uh, hands... No, but don't leave until you've identified yourself to us because we would love to have that conversation with you. Um, secondly, one of the programs that we are particularly excited about here at Trinity College is a program called Activate that is tailored towards young adults and lets them complete not only a diploma of ministry but also to learn practical life skills and very real ministry skills in missional contexts uh, in, a, um, in local mission circumstances, working with homeless people here in Brisbane. Um, we do an outback mission trip, uh, an overseas mission exposure trip to Thailand. Um, and I've just been speaking with this year's cohort of Activate students, um, and, and they, by their own words, have, have reported significant life change and transformation. And it may just be that you know someone, uh, a young person, who, who is at a bit of a loss as to what to do with their life and where to go, um, and our Activate program offers, a, um, a, I believe, a, a wonderful opportunity for them um, to spend some time uh, getting to know God better, getting to know themselves better and doing all of that in a, a context of vibrant community. The third thing to say and the final thing to say is that we also offer many non-accredited short courses uh, here, which you're welcome to come and do. There's always just a very small cost for these, um, uh, but they're non-accredited, so they don't contribute towards a, a larger degree. There are also resources like um, Trinity on Tap, uh, which involves a series of podcasts that you can work through as an individual or um, a small group or a home group can work through. And you can, um, there's also 
uh, a workbook to record um, your, your observations and, and your reflections. Um, and so, uh, if, and there's also the, a podcast, a regular podcast of our, our chapel services here as the faculty and other guests contribute to that. We are here as a college to serve you in relation to all of these things. And so we would love to think that you would make use of us. Uh, so please do um, come and see Paul or myself or uh, any of the other faculty. Um, we, we won't necessarily have a lengthy conversation tonight, but we'd love to get your contact details to have a conversation if we can support you in that way. Other than that, um, I might just pray to close the evening. Would you join me? Loving God, we thank you that you are a God who is alive and you've breathed your life into us. And as your life interacts with our lives, there is an opportunity for us to connect with you in and through a sense of relationship. And in that relationship, Lord, we want to be not just speaking, but also listening, also hearing. And we thank you for the opportunities that uh, tonight has given us to to just think anew and afresh about how that might work and how we can go about it. And Lord, we thank you that whenever you do engage with us, whenever you do speak to us, your word to us is life and it is redemptive. And so with that sense of joy and hope, we depart from this place um, confident and looking forward to all that you might do and accomplish in us and through us um, into the future. We pray together in the name of Jesus. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. They did indeed. God bless, folks. Thank you for coming. Lovely to have you here. Do come and talk to us if we can serve you further. <laughs>